Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Warning, the following podcast has some foul language. You may wish to earmuff the impressionable. It's Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022, 2-2-2-0-2-2. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today in Mercenary Force Recreation News. The Taliban authorities in Afghanistan say their fighters will no longer be allowed to carry their weapons in amusement parks. Well, what fun is the Tilt-A-Whirl going to be then? The BBC reported that up until now, the sight of armed militia members was somehow off-putting to the usual theme park denizens. Regular visitors to the parks looked on nervously as Taliban fighters clutching automatic rifles queued up for rides on carousels and other attractions. You don't think a fighting force dedicated to the return of a 12th century caliphate as amusement park goers in general, but why not? When you've lived in the mountains for 18 years and expelled successive world powers, the bumper cars have great appeal. Americans ride roller coasters for the adrenaline rush. The Taliban rides them to calm down, little like methadone. And imagine being the pimply-faced attendant facing down the Taliban as they want to ride your ride. Sorry, sir, you have to be this tall. You know what? You're good. You're good. Telling a would-be suicide bomber to strap in, a little different in Afghanistan than it is here. But I guess this is a return to normalcy in a way. And in just in case you were wondering, guns are not generally allowed in U.S. amusement parks, though the Orlando Sentinel reported that Disney did see a huge increase in attempt to bring guns into their park with over 20 arrests made in 2020 compared to four in 2016. On the show today, I spiel about the right way to think about Jeff Zucker's CNN resignation. I'm resigned to calling him Zucker, and he's just resigned in the spiel. I'll probably call him Zucker. Hit him with it both ways. He's having a fine day otherwise. But first, have you heard about Web3? This is the idea, to me, a grandiose and possibly unrealistic idea, that everything on the web is going to change because cryptocurrencies will be involved and NFTs and Definitely the blockchain. It's all going to be new and great. And I don't understand it. And I don't think really anyone does either. But I do know the CEO of YouTube this week said Web3 represents, quote, a previously unimaginable opportunity to grow the connection between creators and their fans. Well, whatever it is, there are a few existent, very few existent websites now, games, online experiences that their backers point to as being part of this Web3. And one is a game called Axie Infinity in which players make characters who fight each other. And in doing so, they could earn a person money, real money, or at least crypto on the blockchain, which pretty much is money. And this seems to have some potential. And my guest agrees, it does have potential. But Paul Butler says, it's the potential to just recreate terrible jobs for the poorest among us. And not just terrible jobs, bullshit jobs. And it's all a conscious choice of the creators of this game. Paul Butler, up next. (music) 
This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Leonardo da Vinci was, of course, the quintessential Renaissance man, but even a Renaissance man has his skepticisms. In Leonardo's case, it was geocentrism, and yet it moves. He was punished for that. The Jesuits were created in an attempt to rebut Leonardo. I think Leonardo came out well in the end. I mentioned Leonardo and Renaissance men because I am now joined by Paul Butler, who has a really interesting resume. He's a software engineer, and when he gets an idea in his head, he pursues it by a number of means, either by formulas or by building an interactive or by writing a blog post. And it is through the use of words that he got my attention with a recent post called Play to Earn and Bullshit Jobs. I love the idea of bullshit jobs, and Paul's the first person that I know who pointed to the phenomenon that's being celebrated with gaming that might not be a positive phenomenon at all. Paul, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So if we mention Bullshit Jobs, that is a book that got a lot of attention. I think books with the word bullshit in them uh, get lots of attention all the time. So does Go to Fuck to Sleep and, you know, Unfuck Your Face, all, all this fucking bullshit. And then you put asterisks in it and people love it. But David Graeber made the case, he recently passed away, that, let's put our finger on it. It's not that some jobs are meaningful or grind you down It's or you don't see how they're really good for the world. It's that they're really bullshit. They they absolutely don't need to exist. Or what's the best way you would describe his idea of bullshit jobs before we get into your application to the internet? Yeah, the, the way that I understood it from the book um, is like, I think a lot of people hear bullshit jobs and they think uh, jobs that suck, like just like things that people don't want to do. But Graeber has actually a very uh, specific definition of it. And it's jobs that basically add no value to the world. Um, and his kind of thesis on this is that um, the the system kind of uh, capitalism creates these jobs as a way to basically keep the proletariat busy so that they don't rebel against the system. 
Right. And so capitalism creates a job. Who is capitalism? Well, in the case of, there you know, are complex answers, but in the case of what you're writing about, there is one game that is a stand-in for capitalism creating this job. What is that game? Yeah, so there's a game called Axie Infinity um, that's part of this kind of new wave of games. They're kind of the, the genre-defining game of what's called Play to Earn. Um, and the idea is that you're, you're playing to make money. I had not encountered Axie Infinity until I read your blog. But by reading your blog, I think there are many people who would have come across, well, many people play the game, but also come across an aspect of the game, which was widely seen as interesting and quirky, but also positive as covered by places like CNBC and the World Economic Forum. My God, the World Economic Forum loved this aspect of the game, which was what? One of the big aspects of the game is that um, it's it's kind of part of a Web3 gaming movement. So the idea is that uh, in-game assets that you earn through gameplay um, are basically yours, like they're, they're NFTs, so the game can't control um, who possesses them. Um, now that's a bit of a stretch because the game can, can still turn them off. So um, it ends up being a bit of, of a facade um, where it's not really, you're not really winning these items, you're kind of winning a picture of these items, if that. But um, that's the idea that the World Economic Forum was excited about. Right. And people, uh, many hundreds of Filipinos, for instance, spend their time committed to the menial task of, what verb should we use? Mining these items, creating these items, drudgerously acquiring these items. Yeah, exactly. So the, it's a mobile-based game. They're playing these, um, playing this game and... For a while during the pandemic, they were earning above the Filipino minimum wage. What's happened in, in kind of recent months is that the somebody did the math and found that the amount they're earning is now actually less than minimum wage in the Philippines. So um, this economy has kind of already started to collapse on itself, but still there. And there are many hundreds of people who toil away at this game, creating these items and making real world cash. CNBC loves this. The World Economic Forum talks about maybe this being a positive future. The creator of the game has tweeted about his game being a means of lifting people out of poverty. Yeah. I mean, to, to give credit to CNBC, they did have me on to, uh, to, to talk about it as well. So they, they wanted to see both sides. But um, yeah, this is, this is something that I've seen. Like, it's, it's really, there's a lot of US-based VCs who have gotten very excited about this. And, and they're kind of interested in one side of the economy, which is the people who, uh, who are basically playing this and, and making cash out of it. Um, the aspect that doesn't get a lot of talk is the fact that it's basically a Ponzi scheme. So the, the, all the money that's coming in is not just benevolence on the part of the game's creator. It's people buying in. Uh, sometimes it, at one point it, it cost in excess of $1,000 to join in. Um, to play the game. Market, cost yeah, to, just to play the yeah. game. And that's because you're, the game itself is free, but you're buying these assets that you need to actually participate in the game and, and to earn. Yeah, and the assets are created. Now, when we say created, what is the mechanism by which these Filipinos earning now less than minimum wage are committing their labor to create these items and describe the items if you can? It's uh, so I didn't actually get a chance to play the game because it because it is still expensive to buy in. But from everything I could tell, I watched some like gameplay of it. Uh, it's basically like the original Pokemon Game Boy game. Um, so it's it's kind of like this '90s RPG style. Um, you you kind of pick your. I think originally it all stems back to like magic cards, but turned into a game. So 
Um, I don't know the, the complete lineage of, of this kind of gameplay, but it's basically like you pick your characters, they go into battle. If you win the battle, you get some points and uh, you can use that to breed these characters. And what are, and what are the uh, low paid workers actually creating? So they're just basically doing these battles. People say about one to two hours a day um, is what they put into this. And there's a word in gaming called grinding. It's sort of just like repetitive tasks that are you need to do to get somewhere in the game, but they're not like fun. So I've, I've seen this described as grinding. And the idea is you know, in normal video games, you, like grinding is kind of usually seen as a bad thing, right? Like if you've designed a game that has grinding, probably people are gonna leave it for another game. But because these users are paid to come back, uh, they're essentially just playing this game every day. But here is the crux of the issue. And this is why the Axie Infinity grinding is a bullshit job. In real life, ditch digging might not be fun, but if you want irrigation, you need to do it. And the Lord, the creator or the Big Bang or whoever made this uh, muddy area or dirt area that the ditch has to go in. Sweeping the floors of a factory needs to be done or else the factory gets dirty. That's actually menial, but not a bullshit job. Everything that's a grind in this game was the choice of a creator. They didn't have to do it. We know the guy's name, or at least the guy in charge of the team of creators who made it thus that you had to grind in order to achieve a win with your battle, right? Exactly, yeah. And I think this is where the, the points that I was making in the article kind of generalized to this whole genre of play to earn, because all of these in-game tasks that somebody has to grind and do are contrived tasks. Um, and so when you when you read some of these really fantastical kind of um, predictions and, and projections about how play to earn gaming, I mean, I, this will sound like I'm exaggerating, but literally you can find people saying that like, this is the future of work. Um, and it's it's always, you know, people who have invested in it and, and are trying to promote it, but it gets picked up by, you know, as you were saying earlier, like some pretty serious people and it has this kind of critical flaw to it that this is just contrived work that doesn't need to be done. Um, and so the idea of like creating this metaverse world where people can work and earn money, um, doing things like sweeping a floor as opposed to actually creating art, which is, you know, could be a different thing there if somebody's willing to pay for the art. But when it comes to just like moving a character around a screen and getting into battles and all of this stuff, um, nothing gets created there. It's, it's just, you know, reallocating wealth from somewhere. And that wealth is going to be from players who are entering the game. Do you know if the creators of Axie Infinity purposefully wanted to build a grind into their game so that some people, some amount of people would spend their time doing it and make a little money? Or was this a flaw in the game that they didn't realize how bad it was and there was this real world solution to it? That's one of the things that I think is, is really interesting about this is that from the beginning, this company seems to have, you know, they, they coined play to earn. Um, I think the the mass adoption in the Philippines might not have been something that they expected, but their whole, they have a section on their website that, that talks about it. Their manifesto is all about, um, one of the, straight off their site, things that they say is blurring the lines between play and work. Um, so they, they were interested from day one in kind of, creating this alternate reality that you can work in. Right, because I could imagine a, 
opposite scenario. You know, the Kellogg's people make this nice cereal, but it has this weird sound. And then afterwards, they're like, well, let's brand it Snap, Crackle, and Pop and invent some cartoon characters and we'll make the best of it. You're saying this was their plan all along. The thing they may not have known is how, quote unquote, well their plan would work. But they wanted to create bullshit jobs in cyberspace to make their game and the people who pay $1,000 to get into their game function. More or less, yeah. I expect that initially they probably thought they could make more of a fun game and that there would be people kind of coming in organically and and just playing the game for fun. Um, When I looked, you know, one of the things I looked for was uh, has any, have any game review sites reviewed this as like, are people playing this for fun? And what I found was that everybody I could find who who was playing this, who who had reviewed it, who had uh, talked about it on YouTube or any of this, they were all talking about it as an economic opportunity and not a video game that like you would do to relax at the end of the day. Um, so I think that might have been might have not originally been, you know, the plan to go all in on that. And then when they maybe they ended up with a Ponzi scheme on their hands accidentally and just kind of rolled with it. The people who were lauding it on social media or wherever, were they uh, shills of the company or maybe people who got in early on the Ponzi scheme or people who just honestly liked the game and were touting this aspect of it? It's always a little hard to tell with cryptocurrency stuff because uh, there is such a uh, incentive to kind of shill it on social media. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if, if some of it is, but a lot of what I read seemed to really be people uh, who who were just honestly engage with it. There's like a subreddit you can read comments on. And um, depending on the post, like there were genuinely critical uh, things that people who who played the game had to say about it. So I think that those were not um, generally paid people, although you'd you'd see replies to it that were like, oh, no, you're wrong about all this. And and some of that seemed a little bit um, incentivized. And now the Ponzi scheme is being hailed as the bright future of work currency, the internet, or to listen to Paul Butler as we just did, a sign of bullshit jobs to come. Great talking to you, Paul. Likewise. And now the spiel. Jeff Zucker, head of CNN, or was this morning, has fallen on his sword and done the right thing to hear media headlines tell it. It's the failure to file proper forms, nonfeasance, failure to disclose. What started as friendship had grown stronger between him and a top lieutenant. Daily News headline, CNN President Jeff Zucker resigns over consensual relationship with co-worker. ABC breaking, CNN President Jeff Zucker announced that he's resigning, not disclosing a consensual relationship with a colleague. USA Today, CNN, Jeff Zucker resigns over sexual relationship with top executive. Okay, so it seems like it's about sex. Only this isn't about sex. Sorry, Sigmund Freud. This is about power. No, not in the way that sex is always about power. Sorry, Catherine McKinnon. The CNN employee in question, Jeff Zucker's, I don't know, paramour, is Allison Gollist, who worked with Jeff Zucker at NBC and came to work with him eventually at CNN. But in between, she was in the employ of Andrew Cuomo. 
working as chief communications aide to the governor. So this means when CNN was investigating its top anchor, Chris Cuomo, for assisting his governor brother, who was being investigated for sexual improprieties, the head of the investigation, Jeff Zucker, was himself having a sexual relationship with a key aide who was also once a Cuomo key aide. Andrew, not Chris, but I get the confusion and the lack of clarity is exactly the point. Politico reports that the disclosure of Zucker's non-disclosure was the doing of Cuomo, Chris, not Andrew, who kept his friends close, his enemies closer, and his employers closest of all. Quote, Cuomo's, Chris's, legal team, which continues to negotiate its exit from the network, raised issues about the relationship between Zucker and Gallist. Cuomo's legal team asserted that Zucker was hypocritical to suggest Cuomo had a personal conflict of interest when the relationship with Gallist represented a potential conflict as well. Public disclosure thereof really put CNN in an untenable position. If Zucker stayed, he would lose all authority. One could imagine the hostile New York Post headline, CNN stuck with lame duck Zuck. Now, Politico is reporting that we know that Zucker and Gallist, their liaison, that that came from Chris Cuomo, who's been derided as Fredo Corleone by Donald Trump, but did show some gamesmanship and savvy that would make Roy Cohen jealous. So it was Chris Cuomo, in fact, who says, muckety muck, CNN, Zuck ran amok. What's more, Politico cited a report that CNN received a letter from Cuomo, Chris's, not Andrew's, lawyers demanding that communications or emails between Zucker, Gallist, and Cuomo be preserved, right? Demanding the preservation of emails. In other words, to cut through it, Cuomo is signaling to everyone, I've got the goods on you, and if you try to cover it up, you're going to be in trouble. That report was sourced to, you are not going to believe this. Who broke that part of it? Puck News, i.e. Thunderstruck CNN can't duck bad luck, says Puck. I think this story whole Jeff Zucker story, the importance has been given the wrong emphasis. It's not just that CNN wants no truck with Zuck. It's not network in disarray. It is a very real symbol of the watchdogs of democracy, the press, being in bed with those they're supposed to watch. Fox News, not a fair dealer in coverage of their rivals or of Democrats in general, since the story was something nefarious, but they couldn't quite put their finger on what it was. Harris Faulkner, who I don't watch, but some people do. It was my yeah. understanding, Chris Cuomo, I, I mean, I didn't watch him, but a lot of people did. On that network, it was boosting their primetime numbers at the time. Something tied up in that investigation then took down this guy. But she's right. This points back to the soupy connection of Chris Cuomo, anchor, Andrew Cuomo, public official, their interplay earned ratings bonanza, Andrew gets his comeuppance. Allison Gullist, take into account her employment history. Jeff Zucker, charged with overseeing Chris Cuomo, but encouraging the two brothers to get on TV and create appointment viewing. It's not the sex. It's the boundaries. Andrew Cuomo needed to have them with staffers. Chris Cuomo needed some boundaries over consulting with his embattled brother, over his lack of boundaries. Jeff Zucker needed to set boundaries on how his star anchor would cover his own brother, even when their playful banter would become TV gold. And he certainly needed to have boundaries with his underling, who, of course, is a former employee of the current talent's brother slash interview subject slash I don't know, crisis control client.
I'm making no excuse for Trump or his incestuous world or Fox News, which the network, den of harassment, but they do constantly accuse the, quote, mainstream media of being an unethical, backslapping, unaccountable mess. And in this case, they are not wrong. Well, at least this gives CNN a chance to reassess and reassure that they're putting credibility and transparency first. Here was anchor Allison Camerata's assessment of Zucker's resignation. This is an incredible loss. It's an incredible loss. Jeff is a remarkable person and an incredible leader. He has this uncanny ability to make, I think, every one of us feel special and valuable. So like Mary Poppins or the mouse in Dumbo, what? This seems more like a betrayal of trust and responsibility that will need some building back from more than it's an occasion for elegy. But I guess I never possessed a pair of wings subject to the wondrous wind that Jeff Zucker could provide. How will things shake out? Don't worry. All the players involved have amassed small fortunes due to their highly lucrative skills at presenting compelling television. And I, I really don't know if there is any accountability to be found. I do know that to find it, you're going to need to want to look for it. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Corey Wara. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of said Gist. Michelle Pesca is the head of customer relations for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Deperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.